Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to pause, take a minute, and welcome you into the Kelly family. No matter where you are, no matter what your education background is, uh, no matter what organization you're a part of, uh, we exist to help you grow as an individual leader, as an organizational leader, and as someone um, who's going to take on the world and and start the next generation uh, of businesses. So if you're wrestling with a question as an organizational leader, maybe you're working through, uh, you know, a tough situation in your office, maybe you're trying to start a business and and you're trying to get some clarity, um, you know, or you you would just like to hear from some of our faculty. If you find some research that they've been doing that's really interesting to you, you want them to uh, expand upon it, or you know of an individual who would make an awesome guest for our show. If any of those apply, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear you, your feedback, even just to say hello. You can email us at ROIPod, that's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. Again, ROIPod, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. Well, as a small business out there, I mean, we know that small businesses make up a majority of our economic growth, our economic, you know, movement of money. Uh, Small businesses are building the back of of this country and even around the world. You know, yeah, we do have multinational corporations that are bringing in lots of money and have big market shares, but really small businesses, mom and pops, they have so much of the market, yet I feel at times when it comes to bringing out a new product, when it comes to experimenting, when it comes to entering a market that may have limited market share, there can be a lot of discouragement. There can be a lot of of fear. It, It can be extremely daunting for an organization to say, you know what? I have this new cleaning product, for instance, and I want to bring it in, but but maybe a brand like Clorox or just a major bleach makers. It, it seems very, um, just scary to go against. And how do you even begin to enter? How do you begin to build a customer base? How do you even, is it even worth starting to, to take on a new sector of the market? Well, we're going to answer a lot of these questions. We're going to dive into some incredible research uh, done by Dr. Demetra Andrews. She's a clinical associate professor of marketing here at the Kelly School of Business. Demetra, just welcome to the ROI podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you you do a lot of research, you know, and I, I want you to go uh, just go back a bit and give us a brief overview of you know this uh, you know fifteen years of research you've done uh, within marketing because I think it ties so well into our topic today. So uh, I am a consumer researcher, and the research that I do tends to focus on consumer choice confidence and their readiness to act. So I look at factors, external factors, for the most part, that influence. Uh, consumers clarity, preference clarity, how clear they are on a preference, how ready they are to act on that preference to go ahead and pull the trigger, make that choice, make the purchase. Sometimes it influences even their willingness to pay, like how much they're willing to pay, the clearer their choices uh, will influence that as well. Uh, And I look at, um, I tend to focus on retail sector uh, in my marketing research. So I do look at variables that firms control or can influence um, that will help to generate choice confidence because that choice confidence is such an important precursor to um, 
the actual purchase action and willingness to pay and perception of quality and so many other things that will help a company to either stay strong and build sales or, you know, or it will die in the lack if that doesn't happen. You know, and I can't take credit for the example I gave about, you know, green, green, cleaning products and, and bleach products and everything. Obviously, you know, that comes from you in our pre-conversation, uh, you know, before this podcast, you know, that's one of your, your, your examples and a lot of your research focus on as a case study, you know, so unpack that because I think there's, there's some interesting, um, takeaways from, you know, for instance, a, a company that's trying to enter maybe the cleaning market. And as we know, I mean, we walk to any major retail store, we walk to any supply store, where we get our cleaning products and there are, rows upon rows dedicating simply just to cleaning products you know so talk about some of this case study let's let's unpack and go into you know what you were researching and then what kind of some of those uh, findings were sure so uh myself and my team uh, my co-authors so we were looking at um really looking at variables or factors that get in the way of people purchasing green products so the idea was that uh a lot of companies are investing in these green or environmentally friendly products that are perhaps either more less harsh, uh, less chemical, they do less damage to the environment. But sometimes they are, uh, and this has been persistent, they are perceived as being potentially less effective than the legacy brand products, the Clorox, the bleach, the things with the harsher chemicals. Um, and so the uptake, the adoption of these products by consumers was lagging behind, it's just slower. And so when you have a company that's trying to make an investment to produce something that consumers you know, are saying that we want, we say we want these products that are going to be better for the environment. We're thinking long-term, but when it comes to purchasing them, then the purchase behavior isn't matching the demand. Then the companies need some information that will help to improve the uptake and kind of reduce this gap between what we say we want and then our actual behavior. So uh, one of the studies that we did actually looked at um, some of the factors that could help could influence it could kind of push people toward uh pulling the trigger and buying the product and so we looked at um, something that retailers or the manufacturer can control and we did look at specifically you know we had our our focal product was seventh generation and we, you know and we looked at um how information form the form of the information in its presentation and the quantity of information cues or pieces of information would that make a difference in terms of if you altered that in some way would that make a difference um and we we did find some really uh, some positive results so information form, meaning that a lot of information is presented in numeric form. So you get numbers, 100%, one, two zeros, and a percentage sign. Uh, numeric information is thought to be very concrete, right? It's It's got one meaning. It's a number. We know what that means. Uh, we looked at numeric form. We looked at simple words. So just a little short phrase instead of just 100% free, maybe it said completely free. And we tested and made sure that completely and 100% were perceived to be the same. Uh, and then we compared those two forms, numeric, simple words to detailed words, which we could think of as a sentence, an explanation. This product is 
completely free from toxins, right? So the full explanation, which leaves nothing to be kind of thought about, well, what do you mean 100% or what do you mean completely? This is the explanation. And uh, we also varied the number of pieces of information, how many 100% or how many sentences did we provide? Zero, so just a picture of the product, like you would see the product on a shelf, um, versus uh, three, bits of information or six. And what we found is that in order to move people to buy this green product, we needed to provide the detailed words. We needed to explain to people what this product was, what these attributes were, uh, and we need to provide more information and six cues. So detailed words and six cues worked better in terms of not only producing a higher um, willingness to buy, but also it actually increased their perceived expertise. And that was important because the issue here, you're talking about the green products, is that people kind of thought, nah, I don't know about this product. <laughs> I don't know. So I don't have good rations, good reasons to uh, buy it. So I can't be confident that this is the right thing to do. So we filled those gaps in with detailed information. And it was really interesting because again, numeric information is thought to be more concrete. But when you're trying to convince people to do something that's different, they have to have good reasons for it. So it's not so much just the concreteness, it's about giving me a reason to change something that has been working for me. I have to have a good reason to make that change. So I need that detailed information so that I can build a confident attitude. So, um, and in fact, we did find that we provided just three pieces of information. It was no different than just showing the bottle on the shelf, just a picture of the label, just a few pieces of information wasn't good enough. We needed to kind of overwhelm the uncertainty and that not only produced perception, higher perception of expertise, it produced higher willingness to act, to actually make the purchase. It produced even a higher willingness to pay. So people found the, with the six cues written in sentence form, they even found that they were willing to pay more, willing to pay a little over $5 instead of a little over $4 for the product because they had a better, re, better rationale for it. Um, and also even more uh, higher perceptions of quality and value for of this product all by changing what the way uh, how much information was provided and how that in, in the form of that information itself. And this is a really robust study and you know and I'm blown away at how uh, you know um, intricate you know and how many factors and variables and, and the, the level of detail uh, in which this study goes. And I think it's really interesting because there, there's amazing principles, I think, to pull out, you know, and I think this is just a great case study as, you know, you're right. I mean, when, when I think of something, you know, it's like, what's going to clean it? I mean, growing up, all I know, oh, you get bleach and that's, and that is like, there's none better. I mean, you're, you're, you're fighting perception of public, which is, I mean, an uphill battle all in its own, especially when you have a lot of people who are resistant to change, who are resistant to, you know, going outside of their lane. You know, they know where their product is. They know what's done. They're brand loyal. Um, but I think there's amazing principles because this transcends outside of just cleaning products. You know, this transcends into organizations that are looking to take on, whether in their tech sphere, you know, and you're trying to come out with a new algorithm or a new software program or a new piece of, um, you know, something, fill in the blank or you know you're you're in the food business and you're trying to find some other you know lane that that's it feels like the market's crowded but there's a lane in there 
You know, and so I want to talk about, you know, something we talking about is, is the idea of confidence. You know, the, the idea of um, what the confidence that is needed uh, to be able, starting from the seller side, to be able to even to enter the market, you know, so talk about, you know, in, in the importance of how a seller's confidence when entering, even if they may not believe it right away, but just having that confidence, it could mean, you know, make or break just from the product even taking off. So confidence, yeah, I, I, the reason I work on, on confidence is because it affects so many things. Now, my research and my research tends to focus on consumer choice confidence, so tr- confidence in the choices that they're making in the marketplace. But confidence itself, in terms of our daily kind of our ability to make the right decision for us in that moment is really impactful because what it does is it gives us the motivation, right? If I become clear on what the right path is to take, then I'm less likely to continue to procrastinate. I know what to do. A lot of times people procrastinate and this could be sellers in the marketplace. It could be students in a classroom. People are, it could be an employee, right? It could be an employee working at a company. They're procrastinating. They're not taking the action because they're just not sure. They're not confident. And I often find that when people aren't confident, it's often because they're missing diagnostic information. They need information that helps them to determine what the differences are between the different routes, the different pathways, the different decisions they could take that help them to predict what that outcome is going to be. So getting to that, actually, especially if you're talking about a company trying to have salespeople go out and sell a product, it's really about even educating the sellers, educating our employees as well to say, this is what the product is. This is what makes it different. Now, that's part of that diagnosticity. And then even moving beyond that to say, now, let me help you to learn this, give you some feedback to boost your understanding, your perception of your own expertise on what the differences are and why they're beneficial, why this is going to be better and for whom this will be better. And so if you can do that, you can build your team's confidence and then they can go out and pass that on to your customers. And then, you know, on the other side of the coin, you do have the buyer. You know, there is the idea you have to create a confidence then within the buyer. And I think your research has shown or this case study shows, you know, when you, when you build a lot of these pillars or when you use the right words or figures and you kind of, you know, try to formulaically uh, piece piece your, your story, your narrative of this product together, you know, being very strategic so that it does create confidence in the buyer to say, you know what, maybe I will give this a chance. You know, talk about what what are some successful tools or successful ways um, organizations are or that you've seen that have built confidence in new markets or in people who um, they're trying to pull into trying their product. Oh my, that's so big. <laughs> so there's so many things that uh, influence confidence. So confidence is really. Um, so it, let's go back to say so it's focused on it is the uh, clarity. It's the clarity with which people hold their preferences and preferences for, you know, buying a specific product or taking a specific action. It tends to be developed over time uh, through informa- uh, interaction with information, personal experiences, even um, emotions that are experienced as people go through life and 
and making decisions. So choice confidence tends to be focused on the metacognition. So which is really my kind of my thoughts about how that went. My thoughts about is this good information? Is it good enough information? Am I okay with this? Uh, and then taking an assessment of do I feel like yeah I know what to do or do I feel like no wait a minute I'm still confused I'm still not sure. And so people have to believe that the information and that that they either possess themselves or that they've encountered and they including their experiences present position them to be clear on what their preferences are right now. And I say right now because our preferences change all the time. Um, and so what companies can do and to help themselves is to really understand your market. You have to get out there and understand your customer. Sometimes your customer is a consumer. Sometimes your customer is a business buyer, but that business buyer is still a person who has a set of goals and preferences. And so we have to understand them and find out what types of information they need to become confident, which will be dependent on the situation, on their financial means, their ability to buy, their ability to process information, but also on how well known the item is. So we talked about the idea that people want to buy or maybe a product that is new. Well, I have to educate on what this product is, why it should work, what they should expect, because I'm taking a gap that's kind of blank. I'm trying to put information in it to build confidence. And that can be a little bit different than when I'm trying to convince them that my widget that everybody understands is different from everybody else's widget. We all understand widgets. In that case, then it is, I have some research that shows that in that case, where people understand the product, it's not that they don't know what it is, it's just that they're trying to decide between different options. In that case, then my understanding of my customer says, well, what I need to do there is provide diagnostic information that helps them determine the differences between these products. And then just making sure that my offering is going to win, it's gonna be best on an attribute that's important to them. And that case, numeric information can actually work better. A lot of numeric information because I'm not trying to teach them. For example, I gave you the example, I did some research and we just looked at like suitcases and items. Two common products people buy. Um, we know what they are, we know what they do. Um, but in that case, the product that everybody knows, then I can use concrete information, numeric information. I don't have to explain to them, you know, what the vibe is. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give them this concrete information and show them that this product is rated better or has more of what they're looking for than the other on some attribute than the other offerings. And that leads directly into, you know, kind of the second portion uh, of this is, you know, once you get into the market and you, you're starting to build this confidence and you're starting to get traction, the importance of, you know, as your research continues, the importance of having your uh, an influential customer, you know, building uh, brand, you know, just brand champions for you that are almost carrying the legwork of your story uh, in a very authentic way, you know, so, uh, you know, and I think the education piece you're talking about is a great is a great way of getting, you know, getting into this topic. So talk about, you know, building um, influential customers and, you know, the, how important this is, especially early on in your, you know, product launch or early on in your company, um, you know, your company founding or wherever you are um, in, in releasing a service or anything, you know, just the importance of, of having these influential customers. Let me back up a little bit. 
So with the advent, there's always been influential customers, right? So this from way back, there's always been the market mavens and the opinion leaders, right? The ones that other people turn to to get information on. They tend to be the people who either purchase a lot or they just they're interested in their hobby. They study it a lot. But those are the people that other so you know in my social circle, maybe they're a connection of a connection that I can go to who can give me some advice on what to purchase. Well, um, when we were in the business play, when we're talking about B2B, business to business sales, then it's actually a little bit easier to identify the influencers. And it's maybe not always easy to get to them, but it's easier to identify them because they're simply, even though there's a lot of them, they're simply fewer big business purchasers, fewer companies that are trying to elevate themselves and you know their team to the position of market maven, leader, uh, a thought leaders, right? So you could identify who they are. Um, but when you we got into, we get into the consumer uh, market place, then you know, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of people. So how do you pick out the, the influencers? How do you keep up with them? And, you know, there are millions of influencers, but maybe their sphere of influence is sizable, but much smaller than a business's sphere, a business person's sphere of influence. And when you add on social media, well, suddenly we could all be influencers. So which ones do you want to find? Who do you want to go and work with? And to make it even more complicated uh, than the influencers, uh, consumer influencers started monetizing their influence and saying, I'm not just going to recommend your product. I would like something in return. I want just the joy of being the market maven or the opinion leader. I would like to be compensated for it. Either first it was in product, then it was just in cash. And so what happens, especially if you're a smaller company with smaller budget, is that, you know, it's really challenging to identify the right social influencer, cultivate the relationship, perhaps steal them away from a competitor and compensate them and then hope that it works hope that they, this, this person does promote your product to the right group and that you get the right result. And so what you end up with is that uh, for in the consumer sphere, it can be very challenging to manage the electronic word of mouth, the story or the narrative that's taking place out on social media between customers, because you do want word of mouth. You want that peer to peer communication because it's deemed as to be more credible than the business to customer credit uh, communication. Right. We know the business is trying to sell us, but peer to peer is typically deemed as more to use your word authentic. Right. And so what you're trying to do is figure out how to make that happen uh, in a cost and time and resource effective way. So a paper that uh, we got published last year uh, looked exactly at um, influential consumers and identifying um, or looking at um, not identifying them, but uh, the idea that you could create them yourself. So if you're a small business or you're a business that just wants to get more out of your money that you designate to influence and to e-word of mouth, or just word of mouth, um, then you can actually create your own influencers. And it's actually pretty simple to do. Basically, we give, gave uh, in, in a study, we gave 
consumers uh, information that was not readily known. We take the brand, uh, it was called um, Athletic Propulsion Labs, I think. And we picked a brand that very not a lot of people knew about and we gave consumers information about this brand that was not readily available in the marketplace. And then, so the first thing was to give people information that everybody didn't know. It's gotta be retweetable, right? It's gotta be something that's worth sharing. Then we gave them feedback. We asked them questions to say, hey, so what do you think this company ought to do? And then they gave all uh, their ideas and we gave them feedback. And we had three different conditions of feedback. We either gave the consumer positive feedback, we gave no feedback, we just accepted the idea, or because this is research, we gave them negative feedback. Hmm, that's not quite where we were headed, but good, good try, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't do that in real life, but it was research. So, but the idea is that when we gave people information that was not widely known, and we gave them positive feedback on their ideas, showing them that, yes, you have understood this information well, you know that's a good idea, you know what you're talking about, then that actually triggered an increase in their perceptions of their own expertise. And that is what triggered their willingness to share this information. So we did the study, uh, we did a pretest made sure that everybody didn't know about the product then we gave did that manipulation that i talked about we actually uh looked you know gave them feedback had them gave them information had them gave them feedback and then a month later we came back and we asked them so how what did you do did you tell people about this and what we found was that um, when we had given people positive feedback, they were much more likely to have gone out and told people about this product because they felt like they had information that everybody didn't know and they knew what they were talking about. They weren't about, they weren't going to get shot down. So that's a good strategy that anyone can use because this kind of willingness to share uh, went beyond uh, personality. So the introverts were just as likely to do this as the experts extroverts. It went beyond social connection. So some people are simply more likely to connect with others, more likely to join groups, more likely to speak up in groups. It went, This went beyond that. And so what we found is that just by giving people information that everybody didn't know and working with them, communicating and saying, yes, you have a good understanding of that, made them willing to go out and share. And that is something that we can all do because it's perceived as more credible. And now you know exactly who the influencers are. And if they stop influencing, they, you know, become less popular, they decide to take a vacation, you can just create more. You know, and it's really interesting too, because, you know, it, it ties back into the importance of education. You know, like you said, when you're even building a confidence in your seller or you're, as a seller, you're building confidence in the buyer and the power of, you know, educating, you know, the consumer. And then, then on top of that, you know, giving them that positive feedback that they can say, yes, no, that is exactly, you know, what it was intended to do. Or, oh man, I'm so glad you brought that up. We didn't even think of using it that way. Thank you, you know, for pointing that out. You know, but for a lot of organizations, there might be this, well, I feel like we've we've looked at our products so long we've put every bit of information out of there but i don't i don't know like that sounds great but i don't know of anything else that we don't know that our customers don't know you know so where can organizations or how can organizational leaders begin to take a step back and, and view their product differently in a way that begins to say you know okay here's something new we haven't told everyone about our product and then how do they get that message out to you know the people who are brand loyal Oh, now that's a good question. So one of the things that um, it's always information interesting is that um, 
there's always waves, innovative thought and waves of we need more innovation. We need to think about this differently. We need to look at this differently. And it's very hard to do if um, everybody in your organization has been there forever and we've always done it this way. So, but there's usually a couple of things. Number one is usually people in the organization who have simply not been heard. They have been, they're the people who come up with the wacky idea. Um, and they're the ones who've been told, you know, well, we can't possibly do that. Well, we tried that 10 years ago. Well, this is when we do the things like town hall meetings and we do focus groups and we invite the, or we just do anonymous kind of drop-offs, right, of ideas. What's great about this product? Why do you, you're an employee, why do you love this product? You know, we give incentives for them to go out and collect, you know, other people's opinions about it, and, you know, and here's a prize. If you collect five of these, you get entered into a drawing. We do things to get the get our employees to think about this differently. Um, so that's one thing to do. Another thing that I have seen companies do is that they outsource it. They actually go out to the consumers. They go out to their customers. If they're businesses, they go out and they say, tell us what you love about it. Tell us what makes it better. Tell us where you're going. Sometimes the sales team, if it's B2B, will get, have that information. But sometimes we just go direct because companies have gone directly to the con to customers. I was one company, it was um, it's GE, <laughs> that actually had a little offshoot of, of a business. It was just a little separate business. And this company did a lot of crowdsource new product ideas. And the idea was they had a website and they asked people, what do you want? What do you wish existed? What do you, okay, you want a pizza oven. What do you wish it did? And the idea is that the people, your customers will think up things that that you hadn't even thought about. They're using the product in different ways. So it always goes back to understanding that customer. How is the customer using the product? What does the customer wish it would do? Yes, a lot of that, uh, maybe it's never going to do that, but maybe they're doing something different with the product or they think that uh, thinking about it a little bit differently than you did because you know, you're too close to it. Um, and I go back to an example and it's a very, it's a fun example I use in, in a lot of <laughs> classes is that um, when you talk about Pop-Tarts, right? We all know what a Pop-Tart is. A Pop-Tart is a pastry. You eat it for breakfast. You put it in the toaster, right? Oh, you can eat it right out of the bag. But Pop-Tarts a while back came up with Pop-Tarts minis and the little to-go packs, right? Because customers were eating Pop-Tarts as snacks. <laughs> they needed a better way to make this thing portable. And so the idea was that if you talk to your customers, then you find out what your customers think about it, because sometimes they, we, yes, we give them that initial information to can make them confident, to convince them to purchase it, but they will develop their own ideas and their own belief systems about the product. And sometimes going back to them can be a good place to kind of spur new thought about the product itself. Again, Dr. Demetra Andrews, clinical professor of marketing here at the Kelly School of Business. I just want to thank you so much for your incredible wisdom and for sharing all of your hard work and research uh, in, in how organizations can better market their products and, and take on some big Goliaths in their industry. Uh, it has been my pleasure to join in today. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.